This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. You want to just tell us who you are? Yeah. Oh, that's quite the question, right? Who am I? Know, I know, right? Um, <laughs> well, my name is Jessica Garraway. I'm 31 years old. I uh, teach in the Minneapolis School District in the field of special education and I teach within that I teach English and social studies. I'm also an active member of Minneapolis Federation of Teachers Union, which I am also on the board of, and I'm a founding member and chair of our Eco Justice Working Group. You see, I have spent a number of years working on uh, various ecological justice fights from Standing Rock to uh, the Line 3 pipeline fight, as well as others. Those those are the, some of the two main ones I've worked on. Uh, and with the Dakota Access pipeline fight, I spent time at Standing Rock, but also spent a lot of time in Iowa where we did, we had a camp we had a mobile caravan that did actions along the route of the pipeline to stop construction and so collectively was part of cost you know it was part of bank erupting energy transfer partners and they had to get bought off by Enbridge with line three I did also a number of direct action trainings um and fundraisers and what have you. Um, and then I've also been very involved around efforts addressing police violence. Um, but before, actually before the Black Lives Matter movement was like, that was the banner that was used. I was doing work in places like Memphis around police violence and um and murders and then let's see did a lot of anti-fascist work as well um super important yeah going to different anti-fascist rallies and doing write-ups doing kind of novice journalism around that sort of stuff um so i was really active in minneapolis during the jamar clark uprising which was kind of a smaller thing didn't get as much press but we had surrounded the police station for about a few weeks and, you know, people were, there was definitely clashes with law enforcement then right. as long as well as white supremacist violence that happened. And it really didn't get picked up surprisingly. Um, I, at, at least from what I could observe. Right. And then I was also very involved in the George Floyd uprising which I'm sure through your questions, I'll be able to ex talk a bit more about. So, um, yeah, well, yeah, I sing, um, I play, I play a little guitar, um, but I'm primarily a vocalist, written some songs and love to 
loves to perform and I'm a writer so doing a lot of like political think pieces for various publications so yeah that's uh that's great I, that's I really appreciate you speaking with me yeah and I know you know we've talked about uh have we been preparing for this interview we've talked about a lot of things we talked um you know we've talked quite a bit about you know the environmentalism but yeah, you mentioned this a little bit. The co- one of the concepts that keeps coming up again and again uh, in preparing for this interview has been that term abolition. You know, and I've yeah. heard that in the past, specifically related to police abolition. Um, but it's been a little bit harder for me to find people that are still willing to talk specifically and strongly around that term abolition. Um, you know, what does that term abolition? What does it mean to you? What does it include? And you know, why are you still a strong advocate of this concept of of abolition? Hmm. Yeah, and I'd be interested to hear why you've been having trouble finding people to talk about it. That's a that's interesting. Um, but anyway, uh, abolition for me it means the 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 present day police state um, basically doing away with that uh, complete that you know policing prisons the the mechanisms of, of control and violence of the state, um, doing away with those institutions. Right. Right. I was, I was listening to this really interesting podcast thing the other day, actually yesterday I was talking about, there's this TV show. Uh, God, what's the name of the TV show? It just talks about, I, I could find it later, but it sure. it's a show that talks about policing and it talks about how uh, like efforts to reform the police uh, from the national government to local governments and just like how it just I'm going off on a tangent, but I think people could be surprised just how corrupt these institutions are and it makes sense when you understand the role of police in society um for instance a lot of us will say police unions are not actual unions you know in the sense that for i'm a teacher so we went on strike last year and every other union in one way or another is 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 in conflict with capital Right. Um, is in conflict and, and fighting for concessions from the ruling class. It's not a coincidence that police are quoting as a quote unquote union, the most well-funded, they get everything. You know what I mean? They get it with right. everything that they want because they're not in conflict with capital. Their role is to defend and protect capital and the, and the, and, and class relations and when you really understand that, you understand they can't be reformed. That's is this is like it makes sense that we're focused on some of the most egregious violations of the police. Um, but really, you have to understand it's broader than just uh, the killings that are becoming more frequent and frequent as right. time goes on. It's really the system of violence that they uphold that that can't and that's something that can't be reformed away right right um the fact that someone you don't have enough money and maybe you go in the grocery store you take what you need you you're late on your rent whatever someone with a gun comes to your door or 
approaches you in the grocery store and threatens to kick you out, threatens to take you to jail. Like this is that's institutional violence. Right. Um uh and they're enforcing enforcing inherently unjust system, right? Um yeah, I, I could keep going, but if there's I was just gonna say questions. I you know, you mentioned that podcast. I was also watching um it was on Means TV and uh it's kind of built it's been built as kind of like a left wing like streaming platform. I to be honest, I don't know all I the background it behind too. it. Yeah, so well they had this Detroit Will Breathe uh documentary that just came out. I think oh. uh, pretty recently, it's pretty short. It's pretty uh, intense. It's pretty difficult to watch uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but it has a lot of never before seen um, uh, body camera footage, bystander footage, and other stuff from Detroit for like, I think it was about 50 something days of continual protests after the murder of George Floyd, or at least after the video was released. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's how you could think that there's any way to save or reform uh, the police organization after you watch the stuff that they're saying about, you know, basically how much fun they're having emptying their canisters of chemical weapons on protesters or how they wish people fought back more so they'd have more of an excuse to, you know, F people up and stuff. It's like, it's, it just goes on and on. It's them talking behind the scenes, you know, them talking about how they want to slash protesters car tires that they're asking to leave an area which would obviously make it impossible for them to leave. And then they start uh, harassing somebody who is trying to drive um, and they try to take their keys and then they like, won't give them the keys because they're trying to leave like that. And then they start like arresting them. It's just on and on, you know, and it's all the way to the top because they're talking to their, you know, senior officials about, Oh, can we do this? Can we do that? You know, and these are things that they should never be doing uh, not to mention, mm -hmm. you know, and then they're just be, you know, they're not even following their own rules. There's like an arrest team in this like setup of the way these police work, I guess. And a couple of these police at the front of the line are just rushing in to like grab people and beat them. And the other officers behind are even saying, let the arrest team do it. Let the arrest team do it. But they're already in there just beating people. And of course, uh, the city of Detroit just had to pay out a million dollars to this organization. Detroit will breathe. But none of these police officers have faced any kind of, you know, uh, sanction of any type from the city or any kind of, you know, penalty th themselves, because that is their, their job is to, you know, intimidate and enforce the, the rules of the state. Right. So. And, and, and yeah. And um, remember from what I was watching, it was talking about how the frequency with which police uh, lie, bend the truth, what have you, when it comes right. to, criminal cases and you know just like if it if that was actually something that was investigated and uh addressed the the system as we know it wouldn't be able like the the legal system the court system it wouldn't right. be able to function the way that it currently does and you know some of this isn't too surprising when you realize like in this country Police started as slave catchers, slave patrols in uh, England during the dawn of the, the Industrial Revolution. The expansion of cities were used as a force to keep order right. within the class society. 
and you see with the proletarianization of of workers well people who become workers so it would be people who are living off the land peasants what have you like they are a tool of maintaining class society and that's been my critique of a lot of the movement around abolition and discourse Mm. is i don't hear enough about their yes they're a tool in upholding white supremacy but they're a tool of upholding class society and and class relations right right um yeah i don't know how labor folks can you know like mm -hmm. i see some labor folks that are super supportive of the police and it's like if you look at any labor history anytime you know strikes are actually starting to be successful or gain ground you know they send the police in to like bash people's heads in and stuff it's like how you know just this is like basic labor history stuff well there's been a well, that's, I mean, labor history and, and, and an identity as being part of the working class has been something that has been stripped from the American consciousness, or right. I should say U.S. American consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I've thought about this, like there's, as folks of color, we we fought very fiercely for ethnic studies and understanding of our our political struggles and labor hasn't done hasn't really done that in the same way like and part of it is i think because of certain people in labor bureaucracies or in the you know labor hierarchies in the bureaucracy they don't really necessarily want that militant history to be understood Mm -hmm. because then you couldn't divert energy into i don't know like Democrat, the Democratic Party, <laughs> like, right? Yep. You know, a move away from direct action. You know, democratize spaces within the union, democratized unions in general. Like, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of reason for that. But yeah, there's not that same understanding of like every when it comes to every single movement for social justice ecological justice where we're confronting the laws and the power of the state and 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 corporations they have police have at least in the united states more or less have not crossed that line and disobeyed or hate crossed the line joining working people right so right it's uh yeah labor really has to people in in the movement in the labor movement really under, need to understand like please have not been the friends of right. of working people particularly around strikes and things of that nature so but yeah like i i would say that my critique of the abolition movement now it's just i think it's really good that we're talking about defund and things that we can do there's certain things we can probably do within the confines of capitalism like it would be a fierce battle but moving some funds towards social programming right right and de-emphasizing the role of the police but i don't know the more I, I see things develop in this country. The, the I just become more and more. Um, it just confirms for me more and more that abolition has to be part of like a revolutionary struggle. Right. Like you can't have. Like they're never going to allow you to abolish the police within right. capitalism. I mean, first of all, it. I I think abolition requires the. Dis, is 
it, it is the dissolution of the state. Because what is the state without a, def- a force to mm-hmm. to uh, to enact its or to defend and enact its you know its laws, its policies, right? right? So I would say you can't. It, it, yeah, it's a revolutionary demand. And let's say they, I mean, we saw some of this in Uptown in 2020 during the George Floyd uprising where there, for a time people had occupied the up, Uptown in Minneapolis mm-hmm. when uh, Winston Smith was murdered by the police. And they stopped, the city at a time, they actually stopped using law enforcement to do certain things. So, for instance, businesses around Uptown started hiring private security to clear mm-hmm. things out. Um, the city used to started funding some of these initial community groups like Agape and the Freedom Fighters mm. um, and paying them to peace police and keep order. Like, you right. know what I mean? Like, no, the, I remember the, that, yeah. The state will find other ways to enact to enact it what it wants. It will find another other forces to enact violence on its behalf. And I, I really think we lose something when we when we we aren't focused on like, okay, yes, the police, but what is it that they're upholding? Right. Um and another thing is we really uh I, I, I feel like there is a liberal abolition mu- movement that doesn't really talk about community defense forces mm. or forces that are controlled by the control. Not, I'm not talking about civilian, uh, uh, civilian review boards of right. current law enforcement. I mean, actual defense forces made up by and for the community Right, where, um, you know, there's, there's, while I think the majority of violence under capitalism could be addressed through the redistribution of resources, especially while we tra- tra- transition from capitalism to, uh, you know, whatever, you know, broad tent socialist society, whatever right. that is, um, you're still gonna, there's still gonna be issues of internal violence. There's still gonna be issues of external violence. And you will need for some sort of of formation to deal with that. Um, and you don't hear that talked about enough. And I think if people would talk about it a little bit more, I'm not saying everyone like everyday people would just automatically get on board with it, but right. the position wouldn't seem as it just wouldn't seem as far-fetched i think Mm -hmm. i think if we are made the point that no abolition full-on abolition requires a revolution Mm -hmm. i mean it's at least it's at least a a consistent ideologically consistent position right whether or not people are ready for that i mean that's a that's (laughs) a question right you know, I wanted to, you know, keep it on the abolition front. Abolition Feminism Now is a book by Angela Davis and Gina Dent from last year. I saw you posting recently that you had finished the book uh, and you said, quote, the cutting edge of the feminist movement is here in the abolition struggle. And quote, can you talk specifically about that book and about feminism, the abolition struggle and why they're so 
uh, clearly connected. We've talked about a few of the other struggles, but why is it connected them with feminism so strongly? Yeah, um, I think black women, especially if you have kind of looked at the the ab- the abolition, the police brutality movement, anti-police brutality movement in this country, women and uh, you know women and non-men have been leading forces in that fight. Um, particularly black women and non-men been mm. leading forces in this in the struggle. And I can kind of maybe articulate this through my own person, a personal narrative or, um, yeah. So some years ago I was working at a violence prevention center in Faribault, Minnesota, um, hope center. It's a long time. That was a little while ago. It's before, right before standing rock actually. Okay. And I, Oh, I had a lot of things going on, but this was uh, during this time. I believe that was when Philando Castile was murdered, mm-hmm. right? right? And I was active, and I had been active in the movement against police terrorism and violence. And in this the center for violence prevention center, um, it was my job to follow court cases okay. of people who had been. Um, brought into the system through domestic violence, sexual assault, what have you, um, be supportive of, of victims in terms of going with them to court, uh, connecting people with resources who are victims of violence, writing orders of protection, right? And right. I don't think I would have lasted long in that profession anyway, but um, they were working, they worked very close with law enforcement mm. And the the prosecutors, they work right. very closely with prosecutors, um, were to, now, to their credit, one thing they did was basically if, say, there's a domestic violence or sexual assault situation, a police shows up, officer shows up on a scene, hmm. the goal was for that police officer to immediately connect them to the HOPE Center, the, the, the Violence Prevention Center, right? right? And so, in a sense, it was trying to shift the the focus away from the police interfacing with all of that and having trained professionals do that. Now, but still, that model relied heavily on coordination and positive relationship between the center and law enforcement, right? Right. And I remember I was I went to a fundraiser for the Hope Center, and there was a bunch of police officers who were on the board, and this really old white male gentleman who, I guess, had money and would give money to the Hope Center. And this old gentleman, because he was the one with the money, could dominate that space and said, you know, I think it's terrible the way police officers have been being demonized and treated in this in this climate, and uh, let's, let's bow our heads and say, let's say a prayer for these police officers and their families. And obviously I was like, so let's not say a prayer and bow our heads for the victims of police right. violence. We're going to, we're going to do that. I just thought it was ridiculous. Um, another instance that really was very clear. I couldn't have been in that job for very long. Um, I remember there was a victim um, who I went to court and supported her. She it was a, a 
her partner battered her and committed an act of, of, of domestic violence against her. And in the court, the, her, her, her partner was being sentenced and was going to be given a felony. And the victim was very upset because she didn't want her ex-partner to have a, a felony because she was like, well, she won't be able to get a job. And right. this is, you know, all of these things. And she tried to, she was very emotional and, and she made some outbursts in court. And the judge basically said, if she kept making outbursts that she would be in contempt and she mm. would be in jail. And I'm like, this is the victim, right? Right. It's very clearly not a victim centered system because once it enters in the state in the hands of the state once the case is in the hands of the state for the most part it's what they whatever they desire to do is what happens um i ended up getting fired from that job in Mm. part i think because of my very critical views of of law enforcement and i was very vocal about that and a little naively um I think I, I think it was it was a small town, so I think it was me being there would have caused a lot of issues for their whole with the whole thing they were trying to do. Right. But this is an example of like car this is what what Angela Davis and others in that book would call carceral feminism, right? Mm. Like, which is uh, trying to d- address issues of gender-based violence while relying on the, you know, organize. I mean, they don't articulate it like this. By relying on you, violence, you're 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 you need you're depending on organized violence of the state, right? And and are and I would argue, uh, the state which perpetuates a culture and economic circumstances that brings about that violence in the first place. Mm-hmm. through capitalism and colonialism and patriarchy all that um and and trying to address use that to address the, these problems um and black feminists have been very very you know through insight which the book and it talks about and other formations have been very critical of that approach and in that book i really love i actually thought about this years ago and then i see it in the book and someone else did it mm-hmm. not saying i was the first one that came up with it but i did come up with it independently sure. this idea of uh so in the domestic violence field you there's something that's uh called a a, a violence and, and power and control wheel okay and it's some if you take a look at it, it's it just talks about a cycle of violence. It talks about different things that a partner may do okay. to uh enact violence and the justifications they might use to do that, right? right. Well in the book, um that uh abolition feminism now, they use that will, but instead of uh intimate partner violence, they use it to describe the violence of the state. And they compare and contrast like, oh, the state also uses children against people, right? Mm. It, it it blames the victim. It justifies its violence, you know, in all these different ways. Um, and people are, I, I'm seeing these connections between people really connecting, like Black feminists being critical of the violence of the state. And I, right. whether or not people call it anarchism, I wish there would be more of a general critique of the state right. and an explicit critique of, well, there is explicit critique of capitalism, but like 
uh, yeah, a critique of the state. Specifically. Specifically, I'd like to. Mm. And there's black anarchists, other black anarchists that talk about this and do this as well. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I, and, and you I appreciate that have, story that really highlighted the, what you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't have, you know, if you have abolition without feminism, then the very real concerns around gender based violence and, you know, abuse of children, all of that right. completely gets thrown under the rug, just right. ignored and will be, will continue to proliferate because there hasn't been a real plan to deal with those very real issues that exist in our communities currently. Right. And if you have feminism without abolition, well, what you're going to have is just what we have currently, which is um, you have increasing rates of women actually who have been incarcerated Mm-hmm. Using some of these very laws against them, a lot of women in prison for defending themselves against a, an abusive partner, you know, potentially using violence as a as a means of self defense, right? Right. Um, but these laws have been, you know, can easily be used <laughs> in the opposite mm-hmm. direction, just like hate crimes can be used in the opposite direction from right. what was originally intended, right? Um, and then, so you just have carceral feminism where women and women of color and people of color, it's a pretense for continuing to target and um, disenfranchise our communities. And then environmental struggle is also extremely significant issue for you. I know we've talked about that um, and we talked about that in the beginning a little. I'd argue, you know, climate change is the most dire and immediate yeah. issue facing all of humanity and um Recently, we've seen open attacks. This ties into the abolition part, you know, broad daylight attacks on environmental activists from, you know, killings in Honduras to mass police raids in Germany to activists killing right in the U.S. at the Cop City protests in Atlanta, yeah. uh, uh, in the Ilani People's Forest. And clearly, we need to tie different movements together and specifically bring more people into the environmental movement. You know, in your mind, you know, you talked about standing right. In your mind, you know, what's missing to bring these struggles together or at least to, you know, to massively expand uh, the environmental movement, you know, specifically in the U.S., but also, you know, in general? What what what, what, what can we do to, to really um, tie this stuff together? It's a hard, it's really hard, you know. It is. I think it's hard across mo- different movements because people are so bogged down with, like, being busy and surviving and, right. you know. But I'm starting to, like, I just today I was at an event. um, uh, My union uh, has joined a coalition of folks that are working to shut down the Herc incinerator in North Minneapolis, which is the top cause of it. it, It's the reason for my area where I live and work being North Minneapolis being the highest rates of asthma in the state. Right. Um, And as well as as a CO2 emitter, right? And, you know, I feel like that's a coalition where it's a climate issue, it's an environmental issue, it's a racial justice issue. Mm-hmm. And I think working at these intersections, I mean, Standing Rock, I think, made huge connections for people in terms of indigenous sovereignty 
and and environmental struggle like as as joint issues right. and i'm starting to see that happen people have been moving away from the typical white dominated environmental issues and it, pretty much so many campaigns i'm looking at now and i've been a part of highlight and center racial justice even though uh, I mean, I so I was active in uh, Extinction Rebellion, kind of okay. still somewhat plugged into that. And in the United States, we had to fight tooth and nail for our fourth demand, which centered climate justice and reparations for communities of color and poor communities. Mm. And there are people who are of the old guard who are just like, well, we need to just focus on the climate. We don't want to make this a political issue. Mm. We don't want to alienate people. And it's like, no, climate is just inherently a political issue. Right. And who's impacted is political. Who is going to be impacted first? Is it political? And the right. fact that we haven't done anything about it is political. Like, that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had to fight very hard for it. And then we got it. Um, it's pretty, it's like non-negotiable now. But in general, I, I see that the tide has turned on that. Um I think just working with people, I I see even with the Green New Deal is like you're seeing people moving locally with green schools, with Mm. passing city ordinances. Um, And I like that idea of building power locally and then it's spreading, you know, out. It sounds like you think this is something we, you know, people can be raising wherever they are, you know, in their unions and their environmental organizations. They need to be raising these issues in their towns and cities where they are, you know, at, at community meetings and city meetings and stuff like that, just, you know, start doing yeah. it. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I agree. Well, you know, I really appreciate you speaking with me. You know, is there, are there other things you want to share other groups or uh, events, books, ideas, stuff that you want to plug or mention? I mean, Herc, if you are in the Minneapolis area, we could really use your help with the Herc incinerator fight. Um, Make sure to be aware of and support union struggles, whether they're strikes or events or things of that nature. Find something going. There's there's something there for you to get involved in. Don't have to think. doesn't have to be locking down to a machine, which I've right. done. You can start start small and do. There's other things you can do that can be tremendously impactful. So just start. I really appreciate that. That's what this podcast is all about. And that's our special, thanks for listening, Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.